Well, we are starting a, a series on prayer this summer. We're going to walk through several of the prayers of Paul uh, each Sunday, looking at a different one from Scripture. And we'll go through kind of what we learn from it, why Paul prays what he does, what lies behind and underneath all that Paul prays, and, and why this is so important for him to pray for the Christians of his day. And then if you come back the following week at 9 a.m. in the Sunday school, you'll get a chance to discuss that. Maybe look at some other scriptures that have to do with some of those themes. Talk about practically how we can learn to pray in this way. And I talked about in the Sunday school this morning, I think when we look at prayers in scripture, two things should challenge us. When Paul prays that we would love Christ more, we should be challenged to love Christ more, right? That one seems pretty obvious. And that's good. We should read that and say, wow, this is challenging. He prayed that for them. I should love Christ more. But the other thing that we should be challenged in is really the topic of this series, which is, do I pray this way for myself and for other people? Now, I want you to think a little bit about types of prayers, maybe, that we tend to pray. And I came up with a a quick list, and you can add to this or subtract. Maybe you'll identify with some of this. I know I do. Let's talk about a couple quick types of prayers. There's what I call the update prayer. Right, God, it's been a while, and uh, just need to fill you in on a few things going on in my life. Sometimes this can take the place or, or take the form of maybe somebody praying for a child. God, my, my son Mike was involved in a car accident. I told him he shouldn't be out there at that time, but God, does he ever listen to me? No, no, he really doesn't. And so he did it, and it's his own fault, and it's because he was distracted by that girl. He was thinking about her. I told him not to date her, and it goes on and on like this. And we inform God of all the things going on in our head, in our heart, in our mind. Sometimes this takes the form of updating others. We call this the sharing of prayer requests, right? But a lot of times it's just us telling other people what they need to know about things going on in our life. You know, this could be a a prayer for uh, a a friend in the hospital. and, And so we're praying, dear God, we pray for... Dear Millie, who's in the hospital, you know her spleen ruptured, and, and God, the first uh, the first surgery didn't work, and so we're hoping for the second one. And it was scheduled at 8, but now it's been moved to 9 o'clock, in case people are thinking about going. And God, they uh, she really requests that more people would send her cards, and it goes on and on like this. And the goal is really to get out information. I won't ask for a show of hands if you've ever heard of prayers that way. There's, there's one I think I fall into often. I call it the to-do list prayer. It's really, it falls under a noble cause. It's this idea that here's my day and my schedule and my tasks, and I want to lift them up to God. That's good, right? So I start praying, God, I, I've got these important meetings today. I've got those really three, uh, three really important meetings, and I pray that you would help me. I've, I've got that meeting with Mike, and, and God, I just, oh, I need to remember that thing that I need to talk to Mike about. And then you stop and you take a moment, you write it down, right? And then it's, oh, and, and God, I've got to answer those emails and those phone calls. How am I ever going to get all this done? And it, it sort of shifts from praying to God to managing our day. Then there's the other one I call the magic incantation prayer. This is the idea that if we could just use certain words or phrases or forms of prayer that God would just have to answer, right? Because, I mean, my goodness, who could ignore a prayer like that? It's so impressive, This could use maybe certain words. Dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, Christ Jesus, Holy Spirit, Lord God, baby Jesus. I pray, Lord God, Heavenly Father, Christ Jesus, baby Jesus, Holy God. And we go on and on and on. That that God's just going to be so impressed with our words 
or, or so fed up with us doing it that he'll have to answer our prayers. There's the, the exciting prayer. This is not so much about the words that are used, but more the way that we use the words. Oh, dear God, our church is going through a difficult time, and we pray your blessing on this, that we would stand and be strong, that we would be united. We get louder and louder and louder until eardrums split, and, and God has to answer because, you know, it's just too loud. Then there's the opposite of that. There, there's what I call the, the holy, slow, quiet prayer. Father... We just love you. And we go on like that. Now, I'm making fun. We all do some of those in various ways. And there's nothing inherently wrong with some of these things. But at the same time, I would say there's something wrong that lies behind all of them. And that is, in some way, shape, or form, they are actually, while we say we're praying to God, they're all very much focused on us. It's this idea that God doesn't know what's going on in my life, so I have to tell him. I know, evidently he doesn't. I need to catch him up. Think of the view of God that that portrays in our hearts. It's a very small God that needs us to tell him what's going on. The to-do list prayer is this idea that, God, my, my day that you've given me is so important, I want to give it to you, but then during the prayer, it's sort of like, ah, wait a minute, I need to take that back because I'm really busy, so I better just take that back and run with it. The magic incantation prayer is, is sort of a picture of God like a cosmic genie. If we can just rub the lamp in a certain way, if we can use the right magical incantation, the right form and structure of our prayer, that poof, he'll answer the way we want. That makes God out to be our slave at our beck and call. They're all very much self-centered. And so we're starting this series called Praying with Paul. And throughout this series, we're going to, or actually the whole series is based off of this book by a guy named D.A. Carson. Uh, And in this book, each chapter, he basically takes one of these scriptures and he just studies through it. If you're interested in getting it on your own, uh, you can find this on Christian Book Distributors or Amazon.com, but you don't have to. I'm just letting you know. This is kind of what we're using to follow. Now, I also want to say the goal of the series, whenever I use a book or something to help me lay out a series, my goal is not to say, let's learn what D.A. Carson teaches. That's not the point. Just as it's never my goal to say, you need to learn what I teach. Our goal together should be, let's learn what God teaches. So I'm just using this to point to that. I may quote him a few times here and there. Uh, You might find it interesting as a background study if you like to read, but I just wanted to let you know that I am using this to help me throughout the series. Now, as we go through this and we look at the different prayers of Paul, I want two things to happen. One, I want to be amazed with the Savior that Christ is amazed, or that Paul is amazed with. I want us to be so impressed with Jesus Christ that we would pray the way Paul prays. Two, I want us to be convicted. As we read Paul's prayers and we study them, I want us to stop and think, maybe my prayers are too small. Not that the things I pray for are too small, but maybe my prayers are too small. Am I truly getting to the heart of God 
and praying for those big things of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I hope you'll see that as we walk through this. And I hope we learn to pray for each other in this way. So today we're going to start with the foundation of prayer. What is the foundation of prayer? Why do we pray what we pray? Why do we pray at all? Prayer is us talking to God. I could come to you and talk to you any way that I want. It might depend on the situation. It might depend on something we have going on. It might just be I haven't seen you and so I want to say hi. But what is the foundation for our prayer life? Is it simply the things going on in our life or does it go deeper? So we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up there. We're going to walk through it. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to open it up. If you really don't have a Bible at home, just take that one. We've got more. I would love to get a Bible in your hands. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, looking at verses 3 through 12. Now the prayer in this chapter actually starts in verse 11. And he starts the prayer with this phrase, with this in mind. And so prior to this in the chapter, he has said a whole bunch of things that we're going to look at. And then he moves to prayer. And what he's saying is, because all of these things that I have just said are true, now let's pray. And it's in those things that we're going to see the foundation upon which Paul builds his prayer. So we're going to jump back to verse 3 and start there and walk through. And I'm going to show you three basic foundations that Paul is using here. And then we'll go to the prayer and say, what does he pray and why? Okay? We're going to move quickly, so stick with me. Foundation number one is God's past work of grace. What Paul is going to pray is based on the fact that God has been powerfully at work in the lives of the Thessalonians. Starting in verse 3, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. Now, let's just stop there. What is faith? Well, we talk about faith as being trust in God, and it is. It's very present. How am I doing now? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Am I growing in Christ? Am I learning about him? But faith doesn't start now. Faith started before. When you talk about somebody's faith in Christ, you're going back to the moment that they received Jesus Christ as their Savior. So it's a past work that God has done in their lives. Paul can talk about these people and pray for them and pray the things he's going to pray because he knows God showed up in their life and did something amazing. So let me give you a little bit of history. In Acts chapter 17, you can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. We learned that Paul stayed in this town of Thessalonica for about three, maybe four weeks. We're not sure exactly how long, but Acts 17 says he preached for three Sabbaths. That would have been three Saturdays uh, in the temple or in the tabernacle. And he, uh, or I'm sorry, in the uh, synagogue. So he taught them for those three weeks and then a bunch of bad things happened. But during the time that he was there and he taught for those three to four weeks, a lot of people accepted the gospel and were saved. Just a couple weeks of going in and beginning to teach, people's hearts and minds and lives were changed by Jesus Christ. 
I said, I've been going my own way, but I reject that now and I accept that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Now, this was having such a tremendous impact in that short amount of time that many others in the rest of the city were getting jealous. They didn't like what was going on. So much so that they began to riot in the streets because people were coming to know Jesus as their Savior. Now, that's crazy on the one hand and kind of cool on the other, that these Christians were so on fire for Jesus Christ that it was having this dramatic impact on their city. These people that started this riot, they were so uptight and and gung-ho to do something about their anger that they stormed the house where Paul was staying. And the poor guy that was allowing Paul to stay with him, his name was Jason, he's home and evidently Paul wasn't. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The crowd says, we can't find Paul, let's take Jason. And so they haul him off to court. And they go before the judge and Jason has to post bail in order to get out of prison. Things are so bad that that night, the Christians come to Paul and say, Paul, it, you got to leave. This isn't safe. So under the cover of night, Paul and his, his traveling partner, uh, Silas, in this case, had to leave the city, and they went to a town called Berea. But it doesn't stop there. The people of Thessalonica are so upset that when they hear that Paul has gone to Berea, instead of just saying, he's gone, he's out of our hair, this is fine, They say, no, grab your stuff, we're going to Berea, and we'll go and get Paul there. They're so mad, they leave their own city, go to the neighboring city, and chase Paul out of that city too. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I want you to know the heart and mind of Paul behind this letter. Paul spent just three, maybe four weeks with these people. He knows they accepted Christ, but now he's thinking, but how are they doing? And he's received word back about how they're doing. And they're actually doing really great. They are still living for Jesus Christ. They are growing in their faith. That seed of the gospel that took root when they first accepted Jesus Christ is growing. God had done a great work in the people's lives in Thessalonica. So we praise because God has done this past work. Paul says in Romans 1.6, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do you know why God, Paul could pray or, or declare that the gospel is the power of God? Because he saw it at work over and over and over again. So he's praying what he's praying because he knows God has been at work in the past. But that's not all. He's also going to pray based on the fact that God is presently at work. God didn't just show up, give them the gospel, and say, good luck now. God is still working in their hearts, in their minds, and in their lives. Look at verses 3 through 4. So at the end of verse 3, he says, we we thank God for you, rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. In this city, and this is why I wanted to give you the historical background, this was not a city that was all excited about Jesus. This was not a culture that was happy to have Christians in their midst. Just the opposite. They were out to get the Christians. They wanted nothing to do with them. They wanted to chase them out of their city. In that situation, Paul says, you are growing in your faith. 
You are growing in your love. You are persevering under very difficult circumstances. Paul could write that, and I think there's a part of this. He could be writing that to say, man, good job. You guys are doing a great job. But that's not really the way Paul works. He's writing what he's writing to say, isn't God great? That his grace is so strong and so powerful that even in this difficult circumstance, you are enduring. He gives Christ all the credit for what is going on. Paul's prayer is based on the fact that God is presently at work in these people, that he has previously saved. And then the third foundation, what I'll call God's future work of grace. And here we get into verses 5 through 10. Let me read this for us. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On that day, He comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Paul's tying into some really big themes. The rightness of God's judgment. They're living in a world where people are condemning them, saying they're foolish, they're they're ignorant, they're stupid for believing in Jesus Christ, where they're being accused and, and attacked publicly because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is saying, look, you're sitting under this judgment in your world constantly, but make no mistake, God's judgment is true. And there is a future that is coming. And he says in verse 5, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom. This is, this is a really interesting phrase for Paul. Because for Paul, and for all of Scripture, nobody is ever worthy of the kingdom. Nobody ever gets to the point of being so good that God says, okay, fine, you're so amazing, you better come on in. Somebody is worthy because Christ is worthy and they are in Christ. So Paul can say with absolute certainty because he knows they accepted the gospel, he's seen the present work of the gospel in their lives, he can say, I know based on that you are counted worthy because you've been saved. Jesus Christ. And nothing can take that away from you. You will be counted worthy of the kingdom. This is the thing that they're hoping for. The thing that they're trusting in. And Paul says, I'm praying for you because I know you will receive the thing you are trusting in. And he talks about God's justice. Now we read a passage like this and it seems unfair. It seems very difficult. But again, we have to put ourselves in the situation of these Christians. They are receiving persecution constantly. They are being unjustly accused of many different things. And Paul is saying there is a judge and his justice is coming and it is right and it is good. If there was a group of criminals, there's been stories in the news about people that have been capturing young girls and selling them for horrible, horrible things. Wouldn't you want to go to that group of criminals and say, your day of justice is coming? 
Wouldn't society cry out, let's bring the day of that justice soon? And if you were to talk to those criminals, I wonder if they would say, oh, you're right, I'm wrong, yeah, this should happen. Or would they say, hey, I'm just making a living like anybody else. I'm just trying to put food on my table. What do you care? They'd probably get angry at you, wouldn't you? Wouldn't they? God's justice is a difficult thing. But God made this world. And when we accept the gospel like the Thessalonians did, we're saying, I'm trusting that God made this world, that it really does operate according to his plan, and that his plan, accomplished through Jesus Christ, will succeed. And God's justice is a part of that plan. He says Jesus is coming at the end of verse 7 into verse 10. Jesus will be revealed. All will see. He's saying to these Christians living, sometimes even hidden in their culture, people are going to see the risen Lord. And everybody's going to know that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Justice will be delivered. The world will be changed. And all things will be returned to God's original plan and God's original purpose. And then in verse 10, Christ will be glorified. Those who trust in Jesus Christ will see the day that they have longed for and looked forward to, and we will be amazed. We will marvel. We will be so overwhelmed with this. And Paul's saying, because all of this will be true in the future, now I'm going to pray for you. So based on these three foundations, God's past work of grace, his present work of grace, and his future work of grace, now he's going to move into his prayer. So let's look at this very brief prayer that he prays for the Thessalonians in verses 11 through 12. With this in mind, all of those things, the greatness of God's work, the greatness of Christ's work, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the few quick things that he prays for them. First, he says that they would be worthy of their calling. Now again, this could be read as, well, guys, I I hope you measure up to God's standard for you. I, I really hope you do a good enough job. So I'm praying that you would do a good enough job that God would say, yes, you're worthy, and he would let you into the kingdom. It would be easy to read it that way, except we have the rest of this book that says, no, that's wrong. And even if we didn't have the rest of this book, we have the rest of this chapter And all we have to do is go back to verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul's already declared it to be true. So he's not now praying that they would be good enough. He's saying this is already true. He's relying on the foundation. So what he's praying for is that they would live it out. He's saying God has made you worthy through Jesus Christ Now live in such a way that the world would see you are worthy. Live it out in your life. For Paul, the call that they have received is this call of salvation. We don't become worthy so that we can be saved. 
A lot of people are struggling in their lives to say, if I could just be good enough for God, he would accept me. But I'll never be good enough for God, so why bother? The gospel is just the opposite. We're not worthy, and then we receive the call. God calls us through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you're not worthy. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Completely hopeless. Completely lost. But through Jesus Christ, God makes us worthy. That's why it's all about faith. So Paul is saying, because they have accepted this, may they now live this out. Ephesians 4, chapter 1, Paul says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's not saying make yourself good enough for God. He's saying God has already made you good enough through Jesus Christ. Now live that way. Don't recreate this whole thing. Don't try to make yourself good enough. Live out what God has already done. D.A. Carson says this, But judging by this example of Paul's praying, it should already be clear that our chief concern in petition, that's asking God for things, must not be that we might become successful, wealthy, popular, healthy, brilliant, triumphant, happy, or beautiful. Still less does Paul encourage us to pray that all our problems will disappear. Paul's prayer is constrained by the framework he brings to it. He prays for more signs of the grace for which he has already thanked God. And he prays with eternity's values in view. Paul prays that the Christians would be who they are that they would grow stronger in their relationship with Jesus Christ and stronger in their love and unity with each other, that the gospel would continue to be lived out and evidenced in their lives. And then at the end of verse 11, Paul prays that God would bring his purposes to fruition in the lives of his people. Look at the end of verse 11. And that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Now, it would be easy to read that passage and say, see, God wants to take what we want and just bless it. If you want something, just bring it to God and he will give you whatever you want. Isn't that exactly what he's saying? And the answer, of course, is no. That's not at all what he's saying. Because the foundation of his prayer is that these people have been changed by God. That the power of God's grace is changing them right now. And that one day Christ will return and God's grace will change them completely. And it's based on that foundation and that framework that now he's praying, as God is changing you, may he bless those things in your life in which you are following him. When we become a Christian, God doesn't leave us the way we are. We talk often about God accepting anybody, and that's true. God accepts everybody based on Jesus Christ. It's the only way to find acceptance in God. God accepts us exactly the way we are. Nobody can change ourselves to become better or worse to either eliminate or qualify ourselves for salvation. It's only through Jesus Christ. God accepts everybody through Jesus Christ. But God doesn't leave anybody unchanged once we've come to Christ. And for that, we all need to say, praise God. 
So God is changing us from the inside out. He's changing our desires. He's changing our priorities. He's changing our actions and our habits. He's changing us constantly. And based on that foundation, Paul is saying, may God bless that. Paul prays that they would be changed and that God would bless that. Psalm 37, verse 4, Take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. What does it mean to take delight in the Lord? It means that the greatest desire of your heart is for the Lord. When our greatest desire is for the Lord, God loves to give us our greatest desire. Right? He loves to answer that prayer. And when God gives us our greatest desire, are we not then made more joyful? So does God want us to be happy? Well, in that sense, yes. Does God want us to give to give us what we want? Well, in that sense, yes. But only when it all starts with our greatest desire being God. We have to allow him to change us. We don't come to God and say, well, God, this is what I want, so you just have to bless it. God says, no, no, no. I need to change what you want. Then I will bless that, and that will make you eternally joyful and happy. And that's what he starts into in verse 12. He talks about, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. The goal that Paul wants for them, the highest goal, is that Christ would be glorified. As we look at our prayer life, can we say that is the highest goal? If you think about anything you might want to pray for, a job, maybe healing from a sickness or a disease, maybe deliverance from a difficult situation. And all of those things are fine. In fact, I would say not just fine to pray for, they're important to pray about those things. It's good to pray for those things. But for what reason? Is the reason so that I would be comfortable or you would be comfortable? Is the reason that the situation would work out to our benefit or is the ultimate goal in our prayer that Jesus Christ would be glorified? Now, if that's the ultimate goal, how does that change our prayer? Is Christ glorified when somebody's miraculously healed? Absolutely. But is not Christ also glorified when that person endures in their faith through the sickness? Absolutely. So we have to be careful how we pray. That we pray that Christ would truly be glorified. Don't just pray. If you're out of a job, it's good to pray for a job, but also pray, God, may I bring glory to you as I look, as I'm struggling. You've got a tough coworker, a tough family member, a tough situation. Don't just pray that God would eliminate that. Pray that God would use that for his glory and you would be an instrument of that. Pray that God would be glorified. And then he even goes on to say that believers, Christians, would be glorified. Look at what he says. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is praying that not only would Christ be glorified in them, but that they would be glorified in Christ. His ultimate prayer is their ultimate good. He's not just praying, he's not praying, God, keep these people miserable so that you would be glorified. Okay? That's not a godly prayer. He's saying the thing that will be best for you is to seek the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ. Our greatest glory is found in seeking Christ's greatest glory. And then he ends with the uh, the foundation of all of his prayers, according to the grace of our God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the proper foundation for our prayers. We need to have a biblical foundation when we pray. We need to have a biblical perspective in order to pray biblical prayers. This is why we're going to look more at these prayers of Paul and say, what is he basing his prayers on? Why is he praying what he is based on those prayers? How do we pray in similar ways? Prayer must be done out of an understanding and a trust in God's grace. Which means the deeper we go in the grace of God, the better we will be able to pray and see that grace at work in our lives. Sometimes we pray small prayers because we have a very small Savior. We have a small understanding of the gospel. And we coast along on that small understanding. And then when life gets out of control, we say, God, help me, help me, help me fix this. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. I know it's not Christmas time, but I thought of a Christmas illustration that helps me with this. You know, it's interesting at Christmas times when they have all the Santas in the malls and, and you bring the kid and they crawl up into Santa's lap. And what does Santa say? What do you want for Christmas? And what do the kids do? Well, they got, they got a long list ready, right? Well, Santa, let me tell you. Think about this for a second. Okay, let's just imagine for a second this is all real. Santa is like the greatest toy maker ever, right? Fair enough? Who knows more about toys than Santa, right? Who knows more about children than Santa, right? Who knows more about the child sitting in his lap? I mean, he's got the whole naughty and nice. He must know a little bit about the kid, right? Shouldn't every child that sits in Santa's lap look at Santa and say, Santa, you you know all the toys. You know the children. You know me. Man, why am I telling you what to give me? You should give me what you want to give me. You know me better. Right? So when we come to God, why do we do the same thing? Why do we come just with our laundry list say, God, if you would do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. I think sometimes God is saying, oh, I'm already doing all those things. But I'm doing so much more and I want you to see that too. We need to come to God and say, God, I pray for what you want. And I may not even know what that is. I pray that what you are doing would be worked out in my life and the life of people around me because that's what's best, not just what I want. D.A. Carson says this, Brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all our praying must be a biblical vision. That vision embraces who God is, what He has done, who we are, where we are going, what we must value and cherish. That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward hearty echoing of the church's ongoing cry, even so, come Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that concern the heart of God. Then we will persevere in our praying until we reach the goal God himself has set for us. I find it very interesting and informative and very pertinent to today's culture that in a city, the city of Thessalonia or Thessalonica, where this culture was completely against this church, I see nothing in Paul's prayer for them that has anything to do with the culture. 
There's no praying for the removal of the leaders. There's no praying that the persecution be removed. There's no praying that God would just fix and change their culture and make it Christian once again. There's none of that. And you won't see that anywhere in Paul's prayers. Because frankly, Christians, those prayers are too small. What Paul does pray is that the gospel would be at work in their lives and in their relationships, and it would overflow in everything that they do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. A gospel so simple, this good news, so easy to understand that a child can grasp it, and yet so deep that Paul will pray in other places that you would strengthen us to understand it better. Because that's the only way we're going to go deeper in our relationship with you. And God, as our culture changes around us, and we are tempted to wring our hands and fret over it, may we read these prayers and say, these are people like us. People, frankly, enduring even worse things than we are. And they weren't fretting. Paul's not fretting in his prayers. He's lifting their gaze to you. And so I pray that we would be gospel-soaked people as we know you in the power of the gospel, that then we would pray gospel-soaked prayers for one another and for ourselves and for the churches of this world. We would be so biblically based in understanding who you are and what you're doing that that would just come out of us in the words we use in our prayers. And I thank you that I get to come together with this family of believers, that we strive together for that. We come to your word as, as your authority and we seek to align ourselves with that, not just with our opinions or our good ideas. May we continue to do that. And I pray for those gathered here and for those who can't be with us. I pray they would know you. They would know the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that they would have an, a holy dissatisfaction in their lives to keep growing in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.